Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to the ESPN Footy Pod for another week. Proudly sponsored by Subway, nothing's as big as a footlong. Matt Walsh, Jake Michaels, Christian Jolly with you once again. Jake, you've uh, got a bit of a smile on your face there. You've been in a few Easter eggs, I think. I literally just put an Easter egg in my mouth. That, that's what that yeah. was. Uh, haven't had time to have breakfast this morning. <laughs> so yeah, thought I'd, thought I'd stuff my face with some chocolate. Well, there you go. Isn't that the classic? This is what I learned uh, when I learned journalism at uni was uh, in order to get a subject to kind of open up a bit, you always ask them what they had for breakfast first, just to get them speaking and get them talking. So Christian Jolly from Champion Data, what did you have for brekkie this morning? <laughs> I think you've asked me this all the time. I said, I'll tell you, I don't, think, I don't think I've had breakfast for three years. Um, <laughs> you two are shockers. I, what did I have? I had uh, Vegemite on toast. Four pieces. Vegemite's of... dreadful. Like, I know this is a football podcast, oh, um, but bring back look, the, we've got to talk about this for two seconds. I, I don't understand how anyone can actually enjoy eating that. I actually quite like it. You don't put a big, thick layer of Vegemite on your toast, just a, just a thin-ish one. No. But nice. You couldn't pay me to With eat the morning that. coffee. No. There you go. Well, hopefully Vegemite we're not sponsored by Vegemite. Sponsor. Uh, <laughs> we're all about Subway on this podcast. <laughs> Before we get into the nitty gritty, guys, something you noticed from round five, which piqued your attention, Jake? A uh, few things. I've come with a few this week, just like you, but I'll go with one. It was in the uh, it was in the Adelaide Richmond game where Tom Lynch's boot came off, and he was like trying to put the boot back on, and the umpire called time off as he was trying to put the boot back on, and the whole crowd's just booing him. <laughs> Like he's wasting time. Yeah. Time's off. And I'm pretty sure they were down at that point anyway. So they needed to get the ball moving the Tigers. I just, I don't know. I just thought that was funny. Uh, don't know why they were booing him at that point. Christian, uh, something from the round of footy, which uh, took your attention. Yeah, it was uh, yesterday, uh, Easter Monday at the G. Um, and yeah, it took Hawthorne six minutes and 54 seconds to win their first disposal of the game. World uh, record, which was, a, which was a Myers handball in the middle of the ground, which is a, a new world record. Uh, it's the longest, yeah, longest uh, stint at the start of the game that a team hasn't had a disposal for at AFL level. We ran it. Uh, we actually found a game at Sample under 18s level about five years ago where a team didn't touch the ball for the first 10 minutes and 15 seconds of the game. Uh, so Geelong weren't that bad, but yeah, complete dominance by Hawthorne in the first uh, six, seven minutes of that game. Just not the start you're after on a, a big stage, Easter Monday, big clash, um, and you find yourself three goals down. You're just giving up a head start, Jake. Well, it was the game in the end. They, they lost. They were lost by two goals, I, I believe. And uh, yeah, that was that was the game. You know, you you take you get that four or five minutes back, and they probably win the game, Geelong. But yeah, it's just. Not the year the cats. Mm, swings and roundabouts. Uh, something I noticed, this is going to be a little bit quirky, uh, but obviously when a team's not doing too well, uh, the cameras tend to, to flash up to the coach's box. Uh, and the Giants haven't had a great year. So Leon Cameron was, was on a fair bit at the MCG when they were losing to the Ds. Something I noticed, I don't know how this happens, but next to Leon Cameron, there was a, a socket plug and with, with two empty sockets. Um, and you know normally they're either off or they're on. One of the sockets next to his head was halfway between being off and on. And I'm thinking, like surely the, the someone, switch. the little switch was, was halfway between off and on. I, seriously, go back and have a look at this because you, you wouldn't believe it. And I'm that kind of guy where I'm not OCD, but I'm OCD enough to just be like, boys, choose one. I'm not OCD enough to be like, it needs to be off because there's nothing plugged in. Uh, but are, like, you, are you a remote 
volume on an, an even number type operator i think it just happens that way i think that's kind of that's kind of my level of ocd where i'm a bit concerned but i'm i'm looking at leon he's got this glum look on his face and i'm thinking surely someone in the box has some sort of level of neuroses but they need to go and look at that and just either flick it on or flick well, it he can't properly. sort out what's going on with his team i don't think he's sorting out the electronics <laughs> in the in the box yeah that's a bloody good point actually uh anyway so i thought that was actually was irritating me more than something i noticed but uh we move on um guys we're going to crack in we're going to continue with our new segment let's overreact to uh, where we sort of, you know, pick a topic and just overreact to it and, and discuss all things that have to do with that topic. And I think it's a pretty obvious one this week because uh, it's dominated the airwaves, it's dominated the column space, it's dominated TV, and it's the umpire descent rule and the complications that come about as a result of it. Um, Jake, we saw basically a very broad interpretation is kind of a really nice way of putting it. We saw some instances where uh you know arms were put out and they were paid for 50 and and everyone kind of got all up in arms about that we saw one uh yesterday in the hawthorne geelong game where tom mitchell sort of half raises an arm to an umpire about 100 meters off the ball and and 50 gets paid downfield but then we also saw you know in other games where the umpires weren't hot on it and and players were arguably more quote-unquote demonstrative uh and and 50s weren't paid so obviously we're now at a crossroads as we head to round six because you know, the fact that we've got such a broad interpretations of the rules from game to game and umpire to umpire, it's obviously raised people's eyebrows. Where do we go from here? Because it's clearly not working as it's intended at the moment because it is uh, so inconsistent and not black and white. Is it the umpire's fault? Is it the rule itself? Like, where do we move forward here? Because at the moment, it's, it's no good. Well, I think there is a positive to take out of all this. And I think normally when we have an issue in, in football or any kind of sport, if the media, the fans, the players, the coaches, everyone can be divided on it, but I think everyone can sit down here. And I, I would imagine the umpires would probably feel the same too. We can all reflect on what we've just seen, particularly the Tom Mitchell one um, on Easter Monday and say, it's gone a little bit too far. The rule was brought in and, and I'm all for the rule to stop players verbally abusing umpires because we don't want that to, to, trickle down to junior football. We don't want that at all. And I'm more than happy for fifties to be paid when a player is abusing an umpire, but to just hold your palms out and say like, how is that a free and, and a hundred meters off the ball? Like that was the other part of it. Uh, that didn't sit right with me. And I don't think that sat right with anyone to be completely honest. So the prop, the, the other, the other issue is the deeper it gets into a game and the tighter it is, the more tension that kind of builds mm. and less there's it's less likely that an umpire will pay it at an end of a at the end of a game because the tension is so high they're more likely to pay it earlier or when the scores aren't as close i don't like it i just think keep it to verbal abuse um and and don't go on these sort of reactions if you haven't seen it you've got to go and look at what tom mitchell actually did because you'd be scratching your head as to say how was that actually a 50 meter penalty which obviously resulted in a goal Oh, Harris Andrews again, you know, barely raised his arms off his head, and and, and fifty was paid as well. So, and, but- and it's a reaction that people have. Like it's a it's a normal human reaction. Yeah. To do and, that, and and like you said, it, it's not like these players are being abusive, and obviously that's something that the AFL and and you could argue just about everyone in footy doesn't want to see in the game. Um, but you're right. There need there does need to be a bit of back and forth, and you you should be able to ask questions and 
um, you know, it'd be like telling, you know, I've, I've got a, a lot of Italian friends. It'd be like telling them not to use their hands when they speak, because I can tell you now, we have some pretty animated conversations and there's a lot of limbs flying in every direction when it, when it happens over a few beers. So there's, it's got to be some sort of common sense, I think, here, uh, and a common sense approach. But the AFL's kind of doubled down and said that, uh, you know, they should have paid all these 50 metres at all these raised arms. Uh, so we're kind of at the point now where I think round six is going to be a bit interesting because we're going to see a few more of these and it probably isn't the right move. But Christian, you've got a little bit of a different thought about this and, well, and the way that it should be, be handled. Yeah. Even, even just one of your points then of there should be a little bit of back and forth. I ask why. Why should there be any back and forth between an player and an umpire? We, we're used to it. And that's why I think the problem is we're 100 years entrenched in the wrong thing. And I think I said it on this last year's, one of the podcasts last year, how everyone was big on we shouldn't know the umpires. The umpires have done their job well when you don't notice them. They should be the non-noticeable players. And I was the opposite. I'm like, why aren't the, the, the umpires should be the most important people on the field? Because they are. They're in charge of the game. They're, they're officiating the rules. But we always sort of say, well, we don't know any of their names. We don't want to know them sort of thing. So we've, we've got that mentality. But the same thing is just like, why should we have, why are players allowed to approach the umpires for a back and forth? That's not, I don't think it's in the umpire's job description to be able to coach players and teach players and justify their decisions. They just need to make the decisions, pay the free kicks and move on. So, yeah, again, it's, it's going to be hard to change because for 100 years you can pitch a vision of umpires and players and the back and forth. And sometimes you get some good stuff with some of the umpires explaining to a player and almost shutting them up, you know, because we've got the umpire audio now. You can hear some of the back and forth between them. But, yeah, I sort of look at it and I think, I think the biggest issue going back to it is if that was a correct decision on um, – Friday night against Harris or Thursday night against Harris Andrews putting his arms out. Nobody knew that. And that's my problem. If that's the rule, we need to know it. But I'm happy with the rule. And I'm happy with the umpires sort of saying, if I feel threatened or I feel like you've, you know, uh, if there was any sort of dissent my way, I can pay a 50. And that should be up the umpires call. And I think players it should be up to the umpire. And the umpires should feel like they can pay it. There's no issue with that. But to pay it, like, do you think the, the, the Tom Mitchell one was worthy of a yeah, that, that was That's a totally different one. I said the Tom Mitchell one to me was a bit different because, but again, because we have that comfortability in the game of the players think, okay, this is the non-officiating umpires, 100 meters off the ball, I'm going to have a chat to him. I, so in that stage, you know, Mitchell and Gunston weren't doing anything out of the normal than that, what they would have done across, you know, Tom Mitchell's played 200-odd games. He would have done that in nearly all of them. This time, for some reason, the whatever was said or the way it was said to him, the umpire paid a 50, which was surprising. So, again, I, I don't know what was said. From the vision, it looks very, you know, it looks a bit dodgy in terms of you do see that 100 times per game and it's not usually paid. But I'd go the other way. Start paying it more. If that's the rule, start paying it more and shut everyone up. It, it happened in the NBA as well. Everyone thought they went a bit too touchy and you got a tech foul every time you looked at the ref the wrong way. But now they just don't look at the ref. You're not even allowed to like sort of scowl your eyes at the ref in the um, in in the NBA anymore. And I think that's where the AFL needs to get to. And we're all a bit. I just heard a lot of talk about. I think we're all a bit precious that the umpires are actually in charge of the game and what they say goes. Like none of this. Oh, what if it was a grand final? What if it was the start of the game? Was the end of the game? If it's in the rules, it's up to the umpires to pay it. And I think players and supporters just got to get, yeah, sort of get away from yeah going over and back it over and over every umpiring decision and saying what it changed the game, it changed the game. That's the umpire's job is to apply the rules. It's the player's job to kick the score on the scoreboard. If you lose a game, surely it's more the player's fault than an umpire's fault. Mm. See, a couple of different uh, thoughts already on this podcast when it comes to this sort of stuff. So you can kind of tell that it is going to be divisive as it goes forward, uh, especially because we don't know where the line currently is. And this is, I think, the issue you brought up, Christian, is 
it's either here, you know, or it's or it's here. And I'm not. This is great radio, but I've got one hand up and I've got one hand down. And we 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 saw such a broad interpretation. Yeah. And the AFL does need to clarify this because I feel I feel terrible for the umpires who there are some that clearly feel okay with George Hewitt going. Oh, you can't. You know, you're joking with his arms out. But there's clearly another umpire that's not okay with Harris Andrews looking around and going, "You've got to be kidding me." And and so, this has been the this has been an issue with the sport for a long time where it's it is a difficult sport to adjudicate and there's another another rule that's yeah. become tricky too like look look at the holding the ball rule we've been watching the sport all our lives and we still still watch games you know there was a sequence in the Hawthorne Geelong game yesterday there were three holding the balls that could have been paid in the space of 15 seconds and none of them were paid hmm. so you still watch and you're still unsure so how are we going to get to the point where we know straight away yep he's that's going to be 50 for umpire like obviously the verbal stuff's very easy you can hear yeah. it through the mics a lot of 100%. the time and you know but i think the i think they need to be a little have a little bit of common sense and relax at a touch when it comes to sort of those hand arms out 50 yeah, I feel like, like the, the thing is that's that's the catch twenty two. If you have this rule in, and that's why I'm big on maybe you need to scratch the rule. I'm not I'm not I'm not jumping in saying that we should have the rule or shouldn't have the Are rule. Are you a closet umpire? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I am. I feel like I come into the bat for the umpires a fair bit. But again, it, it's the rule of um you, you're sort of saying, you know, we saw it paid on Harris Andrews and then they missed it 30 times and then they pay it again on a Monday game. To me, they need to pay all 30 of them, which is gonna People are going to lose it because they're just going to be complaining all the time. Oh, footy's turned soft, footy's turned soft. But you're right, Jake. As long as we get to a point three weeks down the track, we know no longer can you look at an umpire and put your arms out because it's going to be a 50. Yeah. But that, that is the problem. When when only 5% of the same action is being paid, um, I think that caused a lot of confusion. But again, can you imagine if all of them were paid 50s? We'd be having the same discussion that there's too many 50s being paid. So if they don't pay them, they don't pay enough. They do pay them, they pay too many. You know, so it's sort of you know in a no-win situation here. It's um, it's the ever it's the ever-present question about footy. You can always have a podcast. You can always have a radio segment. You can always talk on TV about the umpires for as long as you want because there's just, it's almost endless the amount of stuff you can talk about. Uh, but we should move on. Uh, if you do agree with either of us at Footy Tips on Twitter, you can let us know or let us not know, but not in a demonstrative fashion. Uh, Christian, we've been doing some X score stuff uh, this this season, so stuff with expected scores. Uh, just some interesting little tidbits every week, and you've got a couple more from this week uh, where a couple of games could have gone differently, uh, could have ended differently rather, had uh, a few players nailed their chances or or not missed some easy ones. Yeah, so two games um, from the weekend, as you said. So Hawthorne Geelong, the game we just talked about uh, on Easter Monday. Uh, yeah, the actual margin was 12 points Hawthorne's way. It should have been five points Geelong way, uh, had everyone kicked to expected accuracy. Uh, and similar with the Adelaide-Richmond game, uh, it was a 19-point win to Adelaide. It should have actually been a 16, 17-point win to Richmond, so 35-point differential there. Um, and that was mainly made up by Adelaide. I mean, Adelaide were expected to score 79 points that game. They scored 101. So they were plus 21 for the round, um, which was the second best behind Melbourne. Um, Although so, it yeah, didn't they, matter they in that result, yeah. did it? They, yeah, they kicked, kicked really, really well. Whereas for the Geelong Hawthorne game, it was more both teams. Hawthorne were plus 8.7 for their expected score, and Geelong were negative 8.3. So Hawthorne were a little bit more accurate than expected, and Geelong were um, under the accuracy than expected. Um, you saw the result flip. But as I said, yeah, Adelaide's probably the one that kicked that, um, you know, the most. 
the most unexpected accurate accurately <laughs> of the round, if that's yeah. how you want to put it. But yeah, Adelaide were the one that sort of stood out for me in round five. There you go. Something something that I noticed with with accuracy was and we kind of touched on this with Brisbane in finals, how they've kind of been a bit unlucky with with accuracy and expected scores. But the Bulldogs over the last two, the two weeks prior to this round, round three and four, they were the most inaccurate team. They were horrible in front of goal. I think they kicked 18 behinds in both games or something like that, two games in a row. And this week they've gone 21-13, 139, smash north. Is it something where it's just always going to fluctuate from week to week? Like, I find it's hard to get a to get a trend. Like, it's not as if one team's just going to be horribly inaccurate all year, um, and that's just something we need to get used to. I feel like it will fluctuate from week to week. Yeah, correct. It always does seem to even out, and I think West Coast were a great example last year. I mean, it evened out in a weird way. They were so overly accurate for the first eleven rounds. I think they were, you know, fifty eight percent, and were the only team above fifty percent. I think for about the next six weeks, they became the 18th worst accuracy and finished as, you know, the third best. So it is, it's one of those ones that, again, it's it's not sustainable if we call it that way. Um, yeah. And as we spoke about Brisbane, a lot of Brisbane was their opposition were just kicking more accurately than they were expected. You can't stop that as yeah. a coach or as a player. Yeah, I think you've spoken, or you've said this almost, uh, this very line on this pod before, Christian, that you can't control your opponent's accuracy as well. Um, but you also can't control some other bits and pieces like your opponents might be trying to force your forwards to pockets or force your forwards to taking marks, you know, 40 meters out from goal instead of allowing easy marks, you know, 30 to, to 15 meters in front of goal. So there's all these sort of variables depends on the, the opponent. You might look at North Melbourne. They were, they were out of that match pretty early. Um, there's probably a, a little bit more freedom and less, less, you know, quote unquote pressure on goal kickers when they're going inside 50, um, a whole heap of variables that can kind of affect this sort of stuff. And, yeah, I know that Christian uh, and Champion Dad does a lot of work with um, you know the the pressure factor on the kick as well as where it's being kicked from. So yeah, I guess you will kind of see all this variance throughout the year. Moving on, we've got uh, an interesting makeup to the top eight so far, and we're almost a quarter of the way through the season. Um, you know, there are a few unfamiliar sides that are now we're quite well entrenched inside the top eight. Uh, you know, Melbourne leading, obviously, fair enough. Brisbane's up there. Sydney, these are teams you kind of expect to be in there after their their seasons last year and beyond. Uh, but Fremantle's second. And we chatted a little bit about Frio last week, Jake. St Kilda's fourth and Carlton is sixth. So there are a few new names in the top eight, uh, you know, as we kind of head into the, uh, the middle part of the season. Christian, you were saying pre-pod that you think that two of these three teams are contenders while one is not. I hate to use a little bit of a clickbaity intro to this segment, but uh, do tell. Yeah, and I think, uh, I think the latter order that they're currently in is probably how I rate them in terms of the three oh. new newbies into the top eight. Uh, Frio, as you said, sitting second. Saints are the next highest and Carlton a bit lower. Again, looking at the numbers, um, and we spoke about it on this podcast before, and I think Jared Bark is going to be doing a big piece on ESPN um, that'll be up this week on premiership standards, premiership profiles. What, what do teams need to be good at to win premierships um, in previous years? And it always comes down to... You know, summing it up quickly, defence and territory. A lot of, you know, we talk about contested possessions, we talk about clearances, we talk about accuracy, all that sort of stuff moulds together. But the Premiers are always good at defensively stopping their opposition from moving the ball and usually play with the ball more likely in their forward half of the ground more so than their opposition. So you sort of put um, the Premiership standards ruler over these sides and, you know, looking at the whole 18-team competition, 
Melbourne and Brisbane again, not good, not good podcast or radio. I'll put my hand up really high for Melbourne and Brisbane are up here. And then there's about 10 or 12 teams in the next rung below where Frio and St Kilda are firmly entrenched in those teams. Um, so we'll start with Frio. Um, and I sort of said with Frio, it's looking back at Justin Longmuir, he took over in 2020. So I look at what uh, Frio have done for the first five rounds this year, and it doesn't seem to be a fluke to me. So they're the number one defensive team. They're the hardest team to score against from turnovers, hardest team to score against inside 50, all that sort of stuff. In 2020, in Justin Longmuir's first season, there, I think they conceded a score from 36% of inside 50s, which, again, they didn't have the most successful season, but it was the lowest percentage ever conceded. So up until this. the end of 2020, mm-hmm. they were the hardest team ever to score against inside 50. Um, Melbourne came along in 2021 and and beat that number, got it to even lower, got down to about 34, 33% of the time you get an inside 50 score against Melbourne, which became the new world record, and they won a premiership with that. Um, so Frio have shown two years ago that they could get their defence down to be the best in the competition. They sort of tried to add a little bit of offence last year, which sort of took their defensive numbers from first to about sixth or seventh or eighth. This year, they've sort of nailed their defensive stuff and got their scoreboard going as well. So, again, if we talk about Frio, as I said, looking at defending turnovers is probably the biggest number for me. Um, so scoring from turnover is makes up a big part of the game. About 50 60% of scores come from turnovers for most teams. Frio, when they turn the ball over, so they win the ball back from the opposition, they score 22% of the time. So one in four times almost, uh, which is number one in the competition. When they turn the ball over, they allow the opposition to score 11% of the time, which is, again, world record lows. I think most of the, most of the comps about 17 to 19%. Um, you score from a turnover. They're only conceding. So they're the best in both they're attacking the best in and both, defense. And they're twice, twice more likely to score from their own turnover than they are after conceding one. So, again, when we talk about sustainable football premiership standards, all that, the, the turnover game always comes up really highly and no team has been better than that than Freo this year. And that includes Melbourne, who That's, just won a premiership based on it. So I find this very interesting because we were doing our little roundtable uh, column earlier uh, this week, Jake. And I think the thing that I was lamenting about, about Fremantle and St Kilda was the fact they probably haven't been tested uh, by teams that you would sort of expect to be around the mark. Um, and, and they actually played each other. Uh, mm. and St Kilda won that battle. So it's kind of strange that you can kind of look at these two sides, and we'll get to St Kilda in a minute, as the, as the contenders of, of these sort of sides that are up and coming. Uh, and yet they were kind of, I remember that game, that was a dire, dire game of football. Um, both teams, low scoring, um, that kind of thing. But I guess it kind of points to the fact that it is kind of tough to score against the Dockers. And they've kind of found a few outlets to goal themselves that, you know, might surprise a few people. You know, we, we, we were talking about this pre-pod, Jake. You know, Matt Tabernick kicked seven on the weekend. Uh, you know, but Michael Frederick, he's got seven goals through five games. Rory Lobb's popping up down in the forward line. Lockie Schultz, Travis Collier, Sam Switkowski, all averaging a goal a game. Yeah, I, I know. But I just, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, and, and I can't dispute the numbers. Like, they're, they're impressive numbers and you can as we say you can only beat um who you who you face in the first five rounds and their their fixture will get tougher through the next five or six weeks but i i just don't know if there's enough enough depth through the midfield and the forward line for there's a boy called nat fife on the sidelines who's coming back eventually yeah that's fine you know you bring fife back but who's frio's who's frio's best forward is it matt tabner okay who's the second best forward yeah yeah, Rory well, Lobb. Again, like it's, it's the names and it's probably the Victorian-centric uh, sort of... Sam Sukowski, we've had a rated elite for the last two years as a small forward. So, you know, he might not be up there in terms of 
Toby Green or Isaac Heaney profile, but he is clearly entrenched as Frio's second or third best. How bullish are you? What they have. Sorry? How, how, how good can they be this year? What, what's their well, ceiling this year? Could they, they win the flag? Yes. I'm not going to say no to that question. I, I, I have them guaranteed top eight at the moment. The way they're playing, I can't see them not making top eight. Very good chance to finish top four. Um, and again, the, the only reason I would be hesitant on winning a flag because I'm big on you need to have lost finals recently to be able to go that next step and win a flag. Very rarely do a team do what the Bulldogs did and just come into finals and, and win all the way through the grand final. You usually have to have that sort of heartache the year before or something, which Freo haven't had. So it would, it would be very, very fluky to go through and win the flag. But as I said, almost looking at these numbers, it doesn't matter the personnel you have on the park. Longmuir has shown that he's got a defensive structure set up that they're not going to let teams get through. They're not going to let teams score. So, yes, you, you, you probably do need, you know, some a dynamic play, to, you know, for the closer games to get you the two extra goals in the final quarter where you might need a player to step up and kick goals. But, again, I don't think Frio needs stars to, to keep doing what they're doing with this sort of structure and game style that they've got going. Hmm. Fair enough. Big there we call go. There Frio. on the Dockers. Yeah. Well, you're keen on them too, Jake. Let's not get... You know, you're an Andy Brayshaw fan, unashamed. Oh, I love Andy Brayshaw. What he's doing is is Brownlow winning at this at this point of the year. He is. He's the first player and only player in the double figures at the moment with the Brownlow. I've got him polling in all five games, and again, the only player to to achieve that. So I think he's been sensational to start the year. Um, David Mundy comes back in and kind of picks up where he left off last year. And as you say, Nat Fife will come back in. Look, there, there's there's enough talent there, perhaps with. With Brayshaw's rise and Sarong as well, perhaps Fife will spend a bit more time in the forward line because I think most people would say that's probably an area where they would like to, to be able to find a few more goals, especially against the, the tougher opposition. Mm. So maybe they can afford for him to go forward uh, yeah. and spend a little bit more time down there, kind of like you know the sort of split that we, we used to see with Dusty Martin. I mean, the concern was, you know, Adam Chera sort of walked, uh, went to the Blues, but, but Will Brody's come in from the Suns. It's been fantastic. 27 touches a game, few tackles, yeah. few clearances. He's he's filling that role. You look at Heath Chapman now in his second or third season. He's becoming quite a capable defender. Um, Jordan Clark comes in, plays a role. I think they're kind of nailing the – they're nailing these role Jordan players. Jordan Clark. Jake, and you're looking at me, but, like, they're nailing the role players. And this is what – you look at good, good sides. You're not a team full of superstars. You're just very capable across every line, and that's what Frio seems to be building. And Jake keeps talking about their fall line. I mean, they've got eight blokes on the in their team that have kicked one goal per game this year, or nine if you include Josh Treacy, who's only played the one game. But you've got eight players that have at least played him. three or more <laughs> games and kicked at least a goal. So you say, oh, yeah, you can throw Fife in there, but maybe you don't want it. Maybe Fife's too predictable. Maybe what they're doing at the moment is you don't know if they're going to go to Frederick. You don't know if they're going to Swikowski or Collier or... Tabner or Lob, and it's probably working better for them in terms of getting that good spread. All right, before we get accused of being a WA-centric podcast, we should move on to the Saints and talk about what they're doing well. Yeah, and again, just, you know, got a bit excited about Frio there and we talked about them, but St Kilda aren't doing much wrong either. Um, you know, if we talk about Melbourne, Brisbane being high up and Frio sort of, you know, really standing out to me in their turnover numbers, St Kilda are just clearly doing everything well without being, uh, you know, sort of talk about Frio and their turnover is just world record pace. Saints probably not number one in anything particular. I mean, they're one for clearance differential. Um, and the number one thing that they asked that I will get onto is their scores per inside 50. So they're the most potent team once they get it inside 50. But a lot of that to do is the ball, their ball movement. So um, they're fifth to scores from turnover, second from stoppages. So again, both parts of the game, they're in the top six for. And we always talk about top six sort of being that where premiers sort of finish in a lot of the stats. So 
Uh, second and fifth there, third for contested possessions, third for points for, fifth for points against. Um, as I said, number one for clearance differential, number one for score per inside 50. So again, a lot of it is just that they, they're all facets of their game are just stacking up into the top six. They're not, they're not getting beaten on the outside. They're not getting beaten from end to end ball movement. Um, I think their pressure is just, I think it's seventh or eighth. Um, maybe their pressure. So maybe that can, you know, step up a little bit more, but again, pressure is one of those things that if you look to be a high pressure team, you're going to receive a lot of pressure yourself. It's just going to be that type of game. So you're going to have a lot more bodies around the ball and the opposition is going to put a lot of pressure on. So I don't think St Gilda want to be, um, you know, too of higher pressure team. I don't think they want to make it a dour, sloggy game like Geelong and, you know, Sydney have in the past and things like that. So I don't think pressure is, yeah, it's sort of a big talking point for St Kilda. Um, but as I said, yeah, number one for scores per inside 50. The way they get it in there, obviously Max King, um, you know, awesome target but when you look at what Jack Higgins Tim Membry's been doing this year um, you know Jade Gresham even Jack Hayes hit the scoreboard a little bit so again similar to Freo and what we're talking about I think they've got they've got the uh, you know what we're sort of saying with Freo in that five they've got the obvious target of Max King down there but you know they still get five goals out of Jack Higgins one week and uh, three out of Gresham another so yeah they're, they're sort of offense is stacking up really really well but their defense is still top three as well the other the other thing I am kind of intrigued about with St Kilda is when you look at some of the players that are set to come back in, Jack Billings, Hunter Clark, uh, Jaron Geary, Paddy Ryder. Jones, Dan Hannabury. There's some good players there as well. I mean, I know I asked the question before with Frio, but where, where do you, where do you see the ceiling with the Saints this year? Yeah. Again, doing a lot, right. As I said there, you know, uh, again, being so high on the ladder, you think they're going to make top eight from this stage. I'm more confident in, putting Freo in my top eight than St. Kilda at this stage. But again, they're clearly in the, in the, the next mix, as I said. That, so the things that they do drop out, as I said, seventh or for pressure applied, seventh for defending opposition end-to-end ball movements, so just outside the top six there. Ninth for points conceded from back half ball movements. So again, they're the only things they've got to tighten up on. Um, so again, yeah, their, their offensive is all tick, tick, tick. If they can just make these slight little tweaks to their, their stopping the opposition from moving the ball end-to-end, um, yeah, there's no reason they can't sort of comfortably be in the top six. We've lamented in the past, Jake, uh, St Kilda's, uh, how do we describe it? Like kind of vanilla midfield, this sort of one paced outfit. But we find as soon as that you, you can kind of get, get, get some fresh legs in and around the footy, forward of the footy, it kind of makes the midfield look a little bit more dynamic. You know, Sinclair goes to the middle, has, has a bit of an impact. Bradley Hill plays on a, a half forward flank, kicks four goals one week. Um, I think kind of like what you were talking about with Fife and the Dockers, Christian, if there's a bit of unpredictability about what the Saints do when they go forward, obviously King is the main main guy down there. But you look at some of the goals that um, Higgins is kicking and they're not, they're not Crummer's goals a lot, a lot of the time. He's doubling back and, and leading out again. So there are opportunities for these teams that have, you know, pretty strong, grunty, straightforward up and down midfields to look into a forward line that's quite dynamic. And, and as, as you kind of pointed out, score, just score. Yeah, and I think with some of those players I mentioned before, plus the players that are currently playing, um, led by Jack Steele, I, I think they 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 have a midfield when at full when they're fully healthy that can match it with most teams. I don't see that as a weakness at all. Hmm. Well, you know, Seb Ross had a couple of down seasons, but he was kind of back to his well, not his best, but he was he was back well in form. Uh, and you know, as you say, Billings 
was touted to have a big year before he got injured, but he'll come back in soon. Um, I think there's a lot to look forward to for the H- Saints. Hanabry's probably few one. Weeks. I, I'm just not sure if he's going to get back and, and I don't think how you can bank he's going to be. Can you? Sorry? You, can't, you just can't bank on him. Oh no! You know he's, exactly a, he's a bonus. He's the cherry on top. Yeah. So you know he, he could be one. He could be. He could be exactly that. He could mm. be a player that does get back and and plays at a B B plus level, and that is enough to really put this midfield over the top. And another uh, thing I look at talk about the Saints midfield is I think other years. You know, I know Gresham's still going in there. You talk about Billings coming back. They've tried to throw Higgins in there. They're throwing all different names. I think. The first thing I noticed about St Kilda looking at their team makeup this year, defenders play defence, midfielders are playing midfield and forwards are playing forwards. I think Crouch, Steele, uh, Sinclair have kicked about three goals between them. So their midfielders don't pin, mm. push forward and kick goals. Their leading defender ball winner is Jared, Jared Lynott who had 19 disposals. So they don't have a guy getting 30 disposals in their back line that's trying to play like a midfielder down there. They're, they're uh, have, we, have they changed his photo yet? I was they about to say yeah, before we yeah, moved on, yeah. he yeah. is still in a Port Adelaide jumper <laughs> on the <laughs> AFL website. Bloody hell. Uh, yeah, oh, no, I know. I get what you mean, Christian. I think um, I think the Saints, yeah, there's a, there's still a bit more upside to them. I think, Jake, what you kind of said about the Dockers, um, you know, kind of at their, you know, performing at, at closer to their ceiling than what I think the Saints are. Um, and that's kind of maybe represented by the fact that Dockers are higher on the ladder at this point, uh, both obviously on, on the same number of wins. But uh, yeah, I, I think there's, there's, there's more to look forward to from a St Kilda perspective he, than there might be from a Frio one at this point. The only th- thing I would say about St Kilda is, do they have an A or A-plus player right now that's not Jack Steele? Max King? Is Max King an A-plus player right now? Well, again, McCollum, so this is, this is the Sam Sukowski one. Jack Sinclair, no matter where he plays, he comes up elite on our numbers. He's played as an elite winger uh, three or four years ago, an elite general defender, and he's back to being sort of midfield wing this year. We've got him elite again. We've got Jack Higgins elite. But again, it, it doesn't need to be the, the household names. It's just Jack Sinclair gives St. Kilda exactly what they need. He, he uses the ball well, gives the metres gain, and wins his own ball. So again... Works out no, that's fine. Rating. I just think if you look back at the, and this is going a fair step ahead, but you look back at premiers over the last 10, 20 years, you got four or five on every single one of those teams. Mm. That's where I just wonder, do they have enough of those super elite players? Well, and, until Dusty was an A grader, he was a B grader. And until he was a B grader, he was a C grader. So I guess you can kind of, as the season progresses, we'll find out. You may, maybe, maybe by the end of the year, we'll, we'll look and we'll say that they have three or four. Uh, the one team that you do not think is a contender at this stage, uh, and Jake's just, you know, he's got his, his frown on, uh, Carlton, even though they are also four and one through five rounds, uh, you're, just not, you're just not seeing what you, you think is, is worthy of being, you know, contender status at this stage of the season. Four, four and one, mind you, but, but pretty much a percentage of 100. Like it, yeah. it, it tells the story, the doesn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, there's, yeah, fair few stats that come up. So even just looking at quarters one um, compared to the Saints and Frio. So Frio won 14 quarters this year, Saints 13, Carlton nine. Uh, so nine and 11. So they don't even have a sort of 50% record, you know, over 500% record um, going just by quarters one. So there is, again, just quickly spilling off the um, Premiership Standards Report and looking at the main fi- main figures that they, you know, need to be top six for. They're 11th for points for, 8th for points against, 16th for stopping a score per inside 50, uh, 13th for points against from turnovers, 2nd for points against from stoppages. So a lot of it is the stoppage game is really, really holding up well, um, but there's still a whole lot of other part of the game that they're not even close to being top six in. So 
there's still a fair few, you know, uh, issues and holes for Carlton, especially around turnover and general play, stopping the opposition ball movement. Um, so as I said, yeah, looking at premiership standards, they sort of just don't fall in enough top six categories, you know, in, in any of the key stats that they need to be. It's funny, in years gone by, you look at Carlton and you think they're pretty sound defensively, but it, up attack, up in attack, they just lack potency uh, and lack depth through the midfield. It almost seems like a bit of a reverse. The midfield depth is now there. The forward line seems to be working pretty well. And Jake, you, you kind of said this before, seems to be masking some issues that they have in defence at the moment. Yeah, it is. I think um, at the time, I, I remember saying it, and, and I don't think people quite understood how valuable he was, but Liam Jones, losing him, um, it was massive. I mean, I know Christian has, I'm sure he has the numbers on his, what he was like as an interceptor, but he was, a, he was one of the best interceptors, particularly over the last year or two. And for him to just be gone now, we, we essentially have not have no replacement for him. I know Mitch McGovern was sort of you know, expected to, to come in and play a similar role. And, and, and to be fair, he has played quite well when he's been there. He just is missed now. Um, yeah, I just think that needs that needs shoring up because, as you say, the the midfield, Cowan's midfield is as strong now as it's been at any point I can remember in recent history. And the forward line, I mean, there's how many teams out there have a better, you know, key forward duo than what Carlton do? Maybe two or three. So I, I think there's Carlton feel a a defender and a more consistent small forward short of being a real flag threat. I think at the moment. You talk about Liam Jones. I mean, it was it's it's so simple and stark with the numbers. He was the number one intercept mark player in the competition last year, um, and Carlton as a team ranked sixth this year across the first five rounds. They've taken fifty four, which is the fewest any teams ever taken in the first five rounds across the last eight or nine years. It's an incredible. Carlton, difference. Carlton have dropped to last in the number one step for for what Liam Jones was. Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? Um, and it's funny because because Jones did sometimes cop flack from you know opposition fans and Carlton fans alike uh, for some of his approaches on the footy, but you can't argue with the numbers, can you? No, I, look, I think the issue with I hear everything you're saying, Christian, but I, I think just watching the games as a Carlton fan, the issue I have, and I'm sure a lot of Carlton fans feel this way, is what's happening in these second halves and 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 fourth quarters where we seem to just be we have no energy left. Mm. A lot of bombing long as well out of defense. Defensive 50 exits are pretty horrible and and they're getting uh, the opposition teams are getting a lot of forward half turnovers. And as soon as that happens, the defense is under pressure again and they become more tired. And it's this perpetual cycle of but, they might miss and then they'll bomb it back out again and they'll miss well, and then they'll bomb it back out again. I've always thought, and again, even as a kid growing up, third quarter was the premiership quarter. Yeah. But I always feel like third quarters are sometimes where the game can be re-brought back, especially just half time. You've got a lot more time to watch the vision and start doing coaching. Carlton in third quarters this year is 0-5, 53-4, 157 again. So being beaten by 104 points in the first five third quarters. It almost seems like our game style only has, I've just said an hour, which I shouldn't, <laughs> but anyway, Carlton's game style. Yeah, <laughs> Carlton's game style is very sort of, it's, it's, it's dynamic to watch, but it's very one way out of the stoppage. You want to handball, we want to sort of get that forward press going and start the territory game from there. But if you can get turnover and a little bit of and what Port were able to do in that third quarter straight away was just get take a little bit of heat out of the game and slow it down with a few chip kicks mm. and I could see it as a fan from the behind the goals view you could see Carlton's defensive structures break down quite quickly with Port players just streaming onto the wing and sort of being able to get out to that fat side so again I look at that third quarter and thinking well maybe Carlton and again 
brand new coach. He's only coaching for five to five games, and they are still a young team. Four, they're still really? learning on the job. Yeah, well, four. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're still learning on the job. They have they have this uh, signature way they want to get out of stoppages, but there's a whole other facet part of the part of the game that they need to fix to sort of become a good. Mm. And at the end of the day, they're still four and one. So it could be a lot worse for the Blues, uh, and we'll keep an eye on them. I think with with interest in the, in the next few weeks, because well, you know, as you say, you look at the percentage of some of the teams in the top eight, and you know, 140, 150, 130, 130, 110, and then Carlton at one hundred and two tells mm-hmm. a bit of a story. Uh, we should just, move on. Just before we move on, because yes. we, we, I have asked the question for the for the first two teams that we spoke about, but just on Carlton Christian, you, you obviously don't seem as high on them. Do you, are you ruling them out for top four finish? Yeah, they're. they're they're not a given for top eight. So the other two I can comfortably put in my top eight. Carlton, I think, are still need to, you know, three or the next three or four weeks are still important mm-hmm. to them to shape their season and sort of get their signature about. Massive game this week against Freo, who, as I said, best team defensively. Um, and if Carlton sort of, you know, want to sort of get that high and high end ball movement going and that doesn't work for them early in that game, look out because they're going to have to go to plan B. And I'm not What's sure your tip? Is. What's your tip? Uh, I think you've thrown me on the bus here. I said to you pre-pod that I would be happy to say Frio by 10 goals based on first five weeks of form. But I can see this all happening in the last quarter. Frio's last quarters have been insane while Carlton have looked nothing nothing even close to being likely in the last quarter. Might see a 10-goal fourth term from the Dockers. Gee whiz. There you go. Um, We should move on. Uh, Is the hype justified or is it hyperbole, Jake? One of our favourite little segments. Uh, a few little statements here that I want to uh, pose to you, gentlemen. The incentive for defenders to play in front has been lost. I'll I'll throw that to you, Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we have umpire bashing, but um, I mean, I, I see where you're coming from. It's probably yeah, a lot more in round four, um, Brisbane Geelong game. I think there was a lot made of it because there was three decisions in a row. But again. I go back, it, you know, it didn't it didn't look good for the defender in front because it looked like they were getting pushed out too easy. But if we're sort of talking about umpiring decisions and consistency, I was actually happy with that Geelong-Brisbane game because three decisions in a row went the consistent same way where they <laughs> called play on. So I was happy with it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's just hard being a defender now, isn't it? You've got, you've got some of the fastest forwards and, you know, on a lead, you know, Max King, 200 centimetres and how fast he runs and some of the other blokes out there we've never seen, you know, Buddy Franklin's running around. Uh, but plus you've got, you know, you camp yourself in front and you've got guys leaning on you like Harry McKay and Tom Hawkins who you just can't get back on. Um, makes it hard for him. So, yeah, I, I, I don't envy a defender's job at all. Uh, Jake, Josh Rochelle is the All-Australian forward pocket through five rounds. Um, have to look at a few other names, but I'm probably going to say Sam no. Sorry? Sam Switkowski? Yeah, elite apparently. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. He's been good. Has he been all Australian caliber? Hey, we know that the all Australian team it just ends up being twenty-two midfielders anyway, so he's he's ineligible by by that estimation. <laughs> but oh, he's in the he's in the certainly in the mix. He's been one of the, the he's better. A, he's a clutch. He's a clutch kicker, and I think his 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 ability to demand the ball for such a young player, an inexperienced player, for him to demand the ball. When the game is on the line, often or or you know when it might be a tough shot, and him just well, saying, literally you know, when the game him. was on the line in the showdown, he yeah. was the one demanding the ball. He didn't end up taking the kick, of course, but for a player in his third game, I think that at the time that was just, that was the, uh, round three, is a pretty remarkable thing. And he is, as you say, he's one of the um, he's one of the best kicks 
in the comp, certainly for the young players. That's the other thing. Adelaide, I must say, like Taylor Walker as well, I'm, for all the criticism he's cop, got to give him some credit. He's a, he's a very good set shot for goal. Yep. Um, so Nailing your chances. They, they are taking their chances. Um, yeah, he's certainly in the discussion. Five rounds, though. I mean, gee. <laughs> You won't like the next question then. Uh, before we move on from Rochelle, I had a, a sort of a, a, a bit of an epiphany at one point that I was looking at. Um, uh, uh, he reminds me of a slightly heavier set Boomer Harvey uh, with more f- skills forward of, of, of centre because he's got the same kind of... With more skills forward of centre than Boomer Harvey. That's a big call. Boomer Harvey was no slouch. No, but, but Boomer had this sort of inane ability where his mind was always racing. You could kind of see him looking and twitching as he's running forward with the footy, thinking about three moves ahead. And I get the same feel watching Rochelle play. I, I just feel like Boomer, his mind was working very, very fast, but his body wasn't far behind it. Um, I feel like, you know, Rochelle, obviously only a few games into his career, but there's a similar kind of like, his mind is working overtime to see what the next move is going to be. And his body is, is, is so far keeping up with that sort of stuff. And his kicks are precise and his kicking for goal is precise. And his, his ability to kind of almost like hop on the spot and just be, you know, 360 degrees, wherever he wants to go, he's there. Just has that sort of like Boomer Harvey-ness about him, which I find interesting. Mm. Uh, moving on to the next question. Oh, I've lost this. Where is it? Uh, James Sicily is worth a million dollars a year as a free agent. Christian, I might ask you, ask you this. Uh, pretty quick to say no. No, oh, you hate James. Sicily. No, based <laughs> no based on the position. You can call maybe you can say I hate key defenders or something. But I, I'm not spending a million dollars on on my defence. Um, would you spend Would you spend a million on a ruckman? Uh, no, I don't. Would think you spend a so. million dollars to get Liam Jones back if he was ticking all the boxes? <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Um, but yeah, again, not taking away from Sicily, he's definitely, I'd, you know, I'd put him in the top five or ten paid defenders in the competition. Um, but I'm not forking out a million dollars for some intercept marks. Jake, you oh, I think calls? he's a bit more. I think he's a bit more than an, than a few intercept marks. But a million is a lot. I mean, you know, in, in AFL circles, like. He should be. I, I I think he should be a top five paid uh, defender. But again, where is the line for um, salaries for defenders? Uh, mm. How valuable are they? You know, you can understand Christian Petrarca getting a million dollars because he's winning games off his own boot. But as great as James Sicily is, how many times is James Sicily going to win you a game as a defender? So I think he's fantastic, and he, he is a. I believe he is a free agent. Um, or, Before or, or will, clubs get will, excited, he will probably resign with. The he Wolves, will, yeah. But he's I, technically I, a restricted free agent, yes. But I mean, there are every, there there isn't a club out there that wouldn't be wouldn't want someone like that on their side. Look, just look at the impact he's had. I know we spoke about it a few weeks ago with Sicily and Jack Gunston, but the impact those two have had. Uh, coming back into the side. And he is the kind of player that Carlton needs because we did, did speak about uh, Liam Jones, losing Liam Jones. I, I think he's, he to me is the kind of player like where Melbourne was a few years ago before they brought Jake Lever and Stephen May in. They had a pretty set midfield. They had a, a reasonably dynamic forward line. They just needed to shore up their defense. And Christian said it at the start. They they then last year became the stingiest defense in AFL history. So I don't know. I, I'm I'm not a hundred percent convinced he would will stay there super long term. Um and 
he he could fetch a he could fetch a million. I'm not saying it's out of the question. Would I pay it? Probably not, as much as I like him. But yeah, I don't think it's crazy. Last one, uh, Christian. Just a quick one. Easter weekend is the worst weekend for attendances in footy. Uh, hyperbole. Looking at Ooh. again, just looking at this week. I mean, technically, technically, grand final weekend, right? I mean, it's one game. <laughs> um, yeah, so looking at the attendances this week and looking at average attendance from those same two teams playing at those venues previously, I think four of the nine games were above the average and five were below, including, you know, Melbourne GWS. They had 20,700 people. Their average is 22,600 at the G, so not too much difference. So, again, I think it, it yeah it looked like a really low crowd Saturday night, and that's when I heard it started talking about. But it seemed like everyone went with the same... Um, storyline from the weekend that crowds were down it was 20,000 fewer at the Easter Monday game but again not great weather um, and probably where those two teams were four or five weeks five years ago they were drawing in 80,000 mm. um, so now too early to say that the Easter, Easter footy is no good for crowds still, still 10 times more than what they're getting at the NRL so I think oh jeez had to get a clip in there didn't you uh, speaking of getting some clips in there footy tips I am currently leading the competition Jake no what are you really yeah I certainly am this. You're uh, cheating. You're not, not someone the, not on the, the back full, end. Not the full AFL to... one, I can tell you that. But I definitely got eight this week. Uh, and I'm currently leading the footy tips uh, little group there. So if you want to join us, footytips.com.au. Did you tip Hawthorne or Geelong? I think I tipped Geelong and that was the only one I missed. Right. Yeah. You tipped Adelaide. I tipped Adelaide. Yeah, I Good did. Good tip. Yeah. If you want to know my tips, you can just ask me uh, on Twitter at footy tips. I'll respond. Uh, but yes, footytips.com.au footy forward slash ESPN footy pod if you want to join us. Uh, you two are nowhere near it, I don't think. I think you're about five behind me, Jake. Um, sorry, I'm getting a phone call right now from my phone number. Is yeah, that that's weird? A, that's a bit weird. Is that a scam? That could be a scam. Or maybe it's you in the future telling you not to tip Carlton this week. <laughs> um, I probably am. Yeah, it hasn't been a great start. I think I had a good round one and then I've sort of fallen off the cliff a little bit. Um, what happens is you you... You, you kind of have a bad round and then you start chasing early and then you, yeah. you, you do a few risky you. ones to try and catch up. And then it just, it sort of, it's a domino effect. Yeah. So, so um, I'll, I'll have to, now. it's a long season though. So <laughs> don't get too cocky. There you go. It is a long season. Uh, we've been talking for long enough. Uh, Jake can go and answer his phone uh, and we will speak to everyone next week. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN footy pod, wherever you get your podcasts.